Good evening to you all. You're seeing me again, which means that uh, (laughs) a week has passed, just about. So at this point you've gotten uh, almost all the voices in the teaching team in the conversation in these talks with one yet to go. So if you remember the last talk that I gave, I talked about how we're practicing the full eightfold path while we're here. Even though if you look at the schedule, you'll see walking and sitting. And that that's a key part of it, but that we practice in a context and the context is the Eightfold Path. And I talked about how various practices that we do here relate to the path. And tonight is another practice talk and I want to take up uh, a particular theme which is how you can extend your practice hours without staying up later. Does that sound good? So, you know, most of the time when we think about being on retreat, we really focus in on the sitting periods. Don't you think that mentally most of the time you give a kind of pride of place to sitting meditation, especially sitting meditation in the hall, like that's the real deal and then, you know, there's there's other stuff, but, you know, really is sitting in the hall, that's it. When you think of a picture uh, of a meditator, you probably imagine somebody uh, sitting on the floor on a zafu and zabutan, <clears throat> perhaps sitting in full lotus and with their eyes closed and, you know, holding the posture and that's it. That's a meditator. If you saw a drawing like that, you'd say, well, yeah, that's a meditator. That's somebody, somebody doing the practice. <clears throat> And we've certainly given you uh, a number of instructions with some more to come that largely address how to practice with your eyes closed in a stationary position. And there are important reasons to progress in this kind of way to really emphasize giving instructions related to the sitting practice because it helps frame the whole activity. It gives you some of the basic tools so that you can begin to internalize these uh, instructions and get to know their basic principles. And eventually uh, the instructions will be extended to things like how to recognize hindrances and how to work with them, how to work with with pain and difficult emotions in finer uh, detail. So the basic flow of learning is First we receive and kind of ingest the meditation instructions. Then we remember them and kind of digest their meaning. Then we start to incorporate them into our own mind stream and assimilate them as they're available to us, right? So the overall idea is that eventually you get to the point where the meditation instructions become just the way that our 
our body-mind system relates to things when it sits down to practice. In other words, the horse knows the way to carry the sleigh. Oh, that's a little too early in the season for that one, but you know what I'm saying. You just know how to practice with what's happening. It's been internalized in a certain kind of way. And so the practice can, can largely uh, go along with that. You needing to do too, too, too much thinking about what to do next or trying to figure out what's happening and how to relate to it. So that's, that's part of the arc of developing some kind of mastery. But of course, to get to this point requires faith, uh, enough faith in ourselves and in this endeavor and in the practice to continue even when it's hard and difficult. So in a particular way, we learn to work with just this, just this much, and to keep the mind in present tense in relationship to what it's experiencing. To recognize, okay, in order to practice, I just need to deal with this slice of reality. I need to recognize what's happening right now, and I need to find a mindful and wise relationship to it, which is all part of what the meditation instructions coach you how to do. And then, of course, we also offer walking meditations or uh, instructions, or walking meditation instructions are often given at retreats like this, and we've given, uh, I think, one set of these so far. And um, sometimes walking meditation really gets short shrift, both in the instructions that are offered uh, by the teachers, but also in terms of how people on retreat practice. But it's important to understand that walking practice is actually co-equal with sitting practice. It's an equally important and valuable practice. So For those of you who are either inclined towards walking or who have uh, committed yourself to developing a walking practice, there's a realization that it's really valuable and has tremendous awards, but for uh, rewards. But for most of us, it's one of those things where you have to give it the love before you really start to understand the treasures that it has. The Buddha says that one way that you can check out to see whether a practice center is a place where serious practitioners go is to look at the walking paths. And he says if they're well-worn, it's a good sign. The Buddha also says that concentration that's developed while you're walking can last a long time. In fact, the mind can sometimes get more mindful and more concentrated while walking than when sitting. And when the mind experiences wholesome concentration like this, it comes to like walking meditation. Then you're over the practice hump where you're resistant to doing it because it feels like it's boring or that your mind wanders all over. You start to say, oh, okay, my mind is really collected now. And now when I go back into the meditation hall, 
I'm coming with some uh, energy and mindfulness already gathered. I'm not starting from zero. So when it gets to be like that, when the practice shows its value uh, through our persistent investment in doing it and cultivating it, then we make a durable kind of connection with it. So then we've got two strong places where we're practicing and where we're seeing practice in the sitting and in the walking. And an additional thing about walking practice is that in walking you can start to see, okay, this particular way of practicing to be present has some portability with it. Not that you're going to, uh, in your daily life, be you know, lifting, moving, placing uh, on the subway platform or anything. <laughs> but just to be able to establish an easy connection with the sensations of the body standing and walking, and to be able to find that refuge, find that set of sensations, to ground in that kind of way, is something that you can... Uh, use all the time in your daily life. You can do that kind of practice of awareness as you're doing things like walking into the office, walking down the hall in the office, walking in the grocery store, you know, going up and down uh, the halls at your apartment, vacuuming, (laughs) all of those kinds of things. So we've got the sitting practice and then we've got the walking practice if we invest in it. And when we're on retreat, those two things together add up to a a good chunk of time every day. I'm sure you've probably all counted how many hours a day of formal practice you're doing. So considerable amount of time during the day is devoted to formal practice, but then the question comes, well, that's not all the hours of the day, right? So even when you deduct sleeping time, say you're getting eight solid. (laughs) You still got some time. So then the question is how to hold or relate to those hours what practice possibilities do they hold? So, if that question that I just posed to you about what to do in your free time freaks you out <laughs> or makes you feel resistant, then not- notice that, right? It's like, oh my God, you know, we're starting early in the morning and then we're going till after nine o'clock at night and we're not talking and we're not, you know, it's like, and now they're saying, oh, and that's not enough. You have to do more. You have to do more. I don't want to do more. I want to do less. (laughs) Ah, but there are important Dharma secrets about what kind of approach works in making practice easier that are going to be unveiled in the course of this particular 
discourse. So here are things that people sometimes do when there are gaps in formal practice time. So one reaction to this is to think of it as like, this is time off, this is like vacation. Okay, this is like whoopee, whoopee, you know, it's like ah, ah, free time, you know. Let the fantasies rip and, you know, kind of let the mind wander to its common destinations. Right? Let it have a, have a holiday. Okay. Sometimes people take this particular period of time and practice to uh, voids to, as an opportunity to, to rebalance energy or effort. Like some people might decide, okay, I'm really feeling kind of burned out and I actually am tired. I'm going to take a nap to replenish energy. Or maybe some people say, well, I've got too much energy, you know, maybe I should take a run or do something to uh, burn off some of that. Now, those of you who are falling asleep are going, too much energy? Take a run? <laughs> what are they talking about? It's like, I'm barely dragging myself to, you know, nine o'clock. Some people think of these periods in the schedule as a, a kind of self-care window. You know, you could take a shower, you could do some yoga, you know, you could rearrange your socks. <laughs> you know, order, orderly things, you know, that give you a little sense of control in your environment. You know, or for some people it's like, okay, this is where I'm going to find some distraction, you know, like maybe read the label on the shampoo again. <laughs> See if anything has changed. <laughs> you know, and for some people, it's really a, a space out completely hindrance uh, invitation window. You know, just like it, let it, any, everything go, meaning let mindfulness uh, dissolve. So let's take a look at using this time in a useful and productive manner to actually support and extend practice into the off hours without turning everything into a kind of unpleasant and unfruitful over-efforting. Because there is such a thing as over-efforting. Right? Wise effort, what a wise effort is, uh, really depends on the totality of the circumstances. And there are ways that we can drive ourselves or, or demand things of ourselves that are actually depleting and that tighten the body-mind system and lead to more hindrances and a collapse of mindfulness. So discernment is always important in these kinds of conversations. But if there is a way that we can do this, that we can learn to sustain mindfulness in these other periods, it's a really good idea. And it's a really good idea for a number of reasons. First reason why continuity of practice, which is really what we're talking about here, is important, has to do with mindfulness and how it can support future moments of mindfulness. So the understanding is that a cause and condition for the arising of mindfulness in the future is mindfulness being established in the present. 
So one moment of mindfulness conditions the arising of another moment of mindfulness. Thus, it's easier to keep mindfulness going than it is to restart it after it's passed away. So, to consider some of the problems that arise with the collapse of mindfulness, when mindfulness does go away, of course, the door to conditioned illusion opens and then hindrances arise. So when there's a mindfulness vacuum, unwholesome states can enter easily. So if one has the habit of just like letting it all go completely, that's an invitation to hindrances to come and fill the place of mindfulness. And then when mindfulness is absent or weak, we don't actually notice the presence of the hindrances and they proliferate and get stronger. And of course, strong hindrances, once they're there, make it more difficult to reestablish mindfulness, let alone concentration, because you have to first uh, summon the energy and the will and the technique to recognize what you've got on your hands and to begin to apply some kind of effective uh, remedy or to undertake an investigation of the state directly. But when mindfulness is weak, it's hard to do that. So once you've made the effort to establish mindfulness, it's wise and it's functional to keep the thread going no matter what you're doing. So if I was to say, well, uh, what the most difficult way to practice is, I would say it's with stop-and-go practice. That's doing it the hardest way. You know, where you, you save it all up for the med hall, and then you come in and you make, you know, a really mighty effort, and you, you know, bear down, and, you know, <laughs> you know, get the mind and try to glue it to the breath, and... <laughs> You know, it's like, and then when that's over, you're so burned out by the effort, it's like, oh my God, I got to relax. I got to relax. And then you let it go completely. So there would be intense effort, probably a certain kind of over-efforting. And then after that, uh, compensatory uh, relaxation in order to address the tension that's just been accumulated. So there's actually more effort and energy required for less outcome than just chugging away and keeping the thread going to maintain mindfulness. So let's take a look at how you could keep practice going during the interim times here. And, you know, where you focus your attention in the off hours or uh, how you sustain mindfulness in the off hours is really your creative choice to be made individually. But the basic consideration should be keeping mindfulness going in a way that supports balance of mind and adds to whole system energy and willingness to practice. So...
let's look at some of the opportunities for you. Let's go through the daily schedule and see what we've got here as possibilities, all right? Let's consider this process of learning to see the Dharma in things other than formal sitting and walking practice. So those of you who know the seven factors of awakening will recognize that investigation, investigation of states, uh, otherwise known as Dhamma-vikaya, is the second factor of awakening. So it's that, it's what mindfulness does. So mindfulness takes a look at the particulars of what's happening in real time. And that capacity of mindfulness to investigate experience in real time is present whether you're doing the formal sitting and walking or otherwise. So if this Dhammavikaya factor is strong, then the practice can really wake up and become self-illuminating in a very natural way. Utejaniya talks a lot about continuity of practice and um, emphasizes the perspective that meditative awareness and the learning which flows from it can happen outside of formal practice periods. And in fact, people who uh, have done a lot of practice or even a little bit of practice, oftentimes notice that sometimes the deepest learnings, the deepest insights actually happen off the cushion. Sometimes very unbidden and surprising ways. So let's start the day. Okay, you've got the wake-up call. <clears throat> so what's, what's the mood upon wakening? <laughs> Oh no, <laughs> another day of this. Okay, that's good to know. Right? That's good to know. Good to know. I want waffles. I mean, what, what can be there? You know, the mood upon awakening. So moods are mind states. So that's the third foundation of awareness. You know, uh, what's, what's going on there? What's the morning level, energy level? What's the attitude toward, towards the day that's present? So none of these are right and wrong questions, right? Like, I'm not trying to guide you towards it should be like this or it should be like that. I'm trying to guide you, incline uh, your minds towards recognizing in real time what the experience actually is. Actually is. That's what we always practice with in this method, with what is actually happening. So as you head to the bathroom, are you embodied yet? You know, do you feel your hands on the door as you, you open it? As you get dressed and make your bed and brush your teeth and that stuff, do you feel the sensations of doing that? And if awareness isn't with the body, then where is it? I mean, you might still be semi-sombulent. Speaking as someone who's not a morning person myself. So as, as you head to the meditation hall for the set, so what's going on in your mind as you, as you go down the hall? Is it happiness? Is it sleepiness? Is it interest? Is it, is it resistance? Is it dullness? Is it brightness? 
you know, is there a connection with sensations of the body walking down the hall? Right? There, there we go back to the value of walking meditation. You know, are, are you embodied as you're walking down the hall? Present with the movement. As you become aware of other yogis, as you, you move towards the hall in the, this uh, morning hour, what's the reaction? If any, you know, do you want them to go away? <laughs> do you worry about them? Do you notice some people more than others? Do you want to look to see if somebody in particular is around? You know, is there aversion or craving, goodwill and compassion, sense of belonging or feeling isolated? Right? Because we're social animals, right? We're giving each other space. We're not connecting with each other directly or anything like that, but we're certainly aware of the presence of others, sometimes more often than others. So what's the feeling tone, the Vedana, of these states as they arise? Are they pleasant? Are they unpleasant? Are they neutral? Now, all of this is based on receptivity to what you're actually experiencing, right? It's not requiring you to like staple your mind to a particular field of sensation, sensations or knowing. It's just asking, what are you experiencing? What What are you noticing? The noticing happens on its own. If the mind is inclined towards Uh, mindfulness and mindfulness has arisen these kinds of things can be noticed so I'm giving you a list of the kind of things that you can notice at particular times of the day okay so let's get to breakfast and the other meals so how many of you done the raisin meditation oh okay well some but fewer than what might be expected. We might have to think about doing the raisin meditation. So, so, even before you get to the eating part of meals, there's a bunch of stuff happening. There's plenty to know mindfully. So you've got the process of standing and waiting to go through the line, right? The exercise of standing posture. So you're standing there and waiting for the meal to start. You may have sensations of hunger in the body. You may have the desire to eat or not to eat, which is a mind state. You might be wanting or not wanting what's being offered. So there may be preferences for certain things which may or may not be available. And they may be craving kind of preferences or they could be just like preferences. Like, you know, I want an apple, I don't want a banana. or It's just, you know, no big charge to it. It's just, yeah, this one feels like it would be better. Okay, the Buddha talks about there being six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then the mind door. So we tend to emphasize some of these more than others. 
Now, in the sitting meditation instructions, there's a lot of instruction on first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of sensations of the body in particular. And that yet, if you look at the, the other sense doors, how often do we practice with smell? Yet this is a very primal sense and is very connected with emotion, actually. Has anybody had the experience of being aware that they're smelling thus far? Mindful smelling? Few, few people? What is it exactly to smell? And then there's the whole set of uh, sensations involved in seeing food, right? Seeing, seeing, uh, putting food on plates, picking up silverware, walking through the line and all that kind of thing. And then the whole back to high school experience of where to sit. Should I sit here? Should I sit there? But I sat there, but then I thought, she didn't like me, so maybe I should sit there. But if I sit there, he's too cute. I'm going to be, you know, distracted. It's like, okay, just find a table and just sit down. And then, you know, the sense of taste, which is also one of the sense doors less practiced with, right? Eating is instinctual. It can be a source of great pleasure, great complication uh, for us. But we hardly ever actually bring mindfulness to the process of, you know, opening the jaws and, you know, putting stuff in there and chewing it and tasting it and moving it around and then swallowing it. But it's major activity. And it's a place where it's actually quite hard to sustain mindfulness for most of us, at least initially. And then there's the whole process of waiting in line to scrape and wash dishes. And the patience and impatience of that and the sensations of doing so. Ooh, that water is so disgusting. You know, it's like they got to change the rinse buckets because there's lettuce floating around in there. How are you supposed to get the stuff off your plate if that... Okay, maybe this is just my mind, okay. So that's all around meals, which happen at least two and for most of you three times a day in some form or another. All right, then we've got the yogi job. So this is the mother load of uh, (laughs) practice opportunities. So if we didn't need uh, yogi jobs, we would have to invent them. You know, there are places, uh, and I'm going to read you a story like this. There are places that actually will give people on retreat make work jobs. I remember going to a retreat center once where they said the previous retreat had uh, as a requirement that the the Roshi wanted the retreatants to actually uh, sweep leaves. 
and the sisters that were running the retreat center said that this was a bit of a problem because they had just had the grounds completely uh, uh, cleaned up just recently. <laughs> but nevertheless, they're out there with their, their brooms, you know, sweeping along. So you may have heard of yogi jobs being referred to as work meditation. Work meditation. When I first heard that, I thought, gee, that sounds a little manipulative. <laughs> trying to get, get, work out of it, get work out of us by calling it meditation. But, but it really is a, a place of practice. So if it's accompanied by mindfulness. So many people have very significant openings of understanding while working. And it's one place where very often our dominant conditioning will really reveal itself. So, I'll give you a story. Uh, This is from Ajahn Brahm. And I have a, a feeling that his, his teacher, Ajahn Chah, may have been one of those ones that would sometimes um, give the monks things to do that had more to do with him poking them with a little stick to see if he could get their calaces stirred up so that they could see them. <clears throat> but here's one such story. People these days think too much. If they would only quiet down their thinking process a little, then their lives would flow much easier. One night each week in our monastery in Thailand, the monks would forego their sleep to meditate all night in the main hall. It was part of our forest monks' tradition. It wasn't too austere since we could always take a nap the following morning. One morning after the all-night meditation session, when we were about to go back to our huts to catch up on our sleep, the abbot beckoned a junior Australian-born monk. To the monk's dismay, the abbot gave him a huge pile of robes to wash, ordering him to do it immediately. It was our tradition to look after the abbot by washing his robes and doing other little services for him. This was an enormous pile of washing. Moreover, all washing had to be done in the traditional way of the forest monks. Water had to be hauled from a well, a big fire made, and the water boiled. A log from a jackfruit tree would then be parred into chips with the machine, the monastery's machete. The chips would be added to the boiling water to release their sap, which would act as the detergent. Then each robe would be placed singly in a long wooden trough, The brown boiling water poured over and the robe would be pounded by hand until it was clean. The monk then had to dry the robes in the sun, turning them from time to time to ensure that the natural dye did not streak. Okay, you laundry yogis think you have a (laughs) touch. To wash even one robe was a long and burdensome process. To watch such a large number of robes would take many hours. The young Brisbane-born monk was tired from having not slept all night. I felt sorry for him. I went over to the washing shed to give him a hand. 
When I got there, he was swearing and cursing more in Brisbane tradition than Buddhist tradition. (laughs) He was complaining how unfair and cruel it was. Couldn't that abbot have waited until tomorrow? Didn't he realize I haven't slept all night? I didn't become a monk for this. (laughs) That was not precisely what he said, but this was all that is printable. When this occurred, I'd been a monk for several years. I understood what he was experiencing and knew the way out of his problem. I told him, thinking about it is much harder than doing it. He fell silent and stared at me. After a few moments of silence, he quietly went back to work and I went off for a sleep. Later that day, (laughs) he was doing his best, okay. He didn't want to be codependent. Later that day, he came to see me to say thank you for helping with the washing. It was so true, he discovered, that thinking about it was the hardest part. When he stopped complaining and just did the washing, there was no problem at all. The hardest part of anything in life is thinking about it. Do you think that was an accident that the abbot gave the novice those robes to do after being up all night? I think not. So let's talk about you and the yogi jobs. <laughs> You'll be glad to know I do my own laundry. <laughs> but uh, So let's start with the jobs that you're actually doing. So do you experience your job as pleasant or unpleasant or more neutral? In other words, um, what is the Vedana? Do you feel resistant to what you've been assigned? Did you scheme to get a particular job because you like it? Do you do the minimal? Do you take emotional responsibility for stuff that isn't yours? Do you get into feeling responsible for things that you haven't been asked to do? So what's the attitude of mind that's present there when you approach the job? You know, is the mind relaxed? Is it tense? Is it hurried? Is it inattentive? It could be all different kinds of things, different times, even in the same work period. Is it checked out? Is it perfectionistic? Um, Do you have the view that this activity is outside of practice and you're getting it done because then you can go go practice mindfulness? So often our mental tendencies reveal themselves in yogi jobs. So I remember uh, the first 10-day retreat I went on was at Brighton Bush Hot Springs. And right at the beginning, right right as we were starting the retreat, uh, they said, okay, uh, we've got some things that we need to do to keep this place up. And so we want you uh, to go to this uh, particular cabin and we want you to take this steel wool and there's some metal bed frames in there that are rusted and we want to repaint them so we want you to take the steel wool and we want you to you know scrape the rust off it to get rid of it so when we repaint it it won't bleed through it'll have a good surface to to take the paint so There I was, with my steel wool, being very diligent 
and careful, you know, making sure I didn't miss any, any spots and, you know, paying close attention. And my mind was drawn to a couple of my coworkers who were being inattentive and not diligent and we're just kind of giving it a few swipes and then, you know, screwing off and not doing it right. And it was really very revelatory because I thought, wow, this is interesting. It's like, I'm taking responsibility here for this. This is really not my job to supervise the uh, performance of the steel wool operators. (laughs) But I could see it was a tendency. I thought, okay been a boss too long. (laughs) Too many performance evaluations here. But this is part of what one sees in these kinds of situations, right? So, as you uh, are doing the job, what Vedana arises with what's happening? Does it change as you work? So I had another yogi job once. This is more recently. I was at at the forest refuge on uh, a long retreat. And if you wonder what jobs that teachers get when they go on retreat, I got the bathrooms. (laughs) So part of my personal policy is, okay, I don't try to manipulate what I get you know, if it's something that would be physically not possible for me, I would say so, but I try not to manipulate. But I happen to have a very good sense of smell. So this was rather challenging to me because my first reaction was, oh, the toilets, the bathrooms, you know, the drains with the hair, you know, ooh. <laughs> it's like the Vaden of it, the thought of it was like, ooh. And I thought, okay, well, all right, this is, this is what we do. So every day I would put on like a particular set of clothes, you know, my wash the toilets uh, and shower clothes. Uh, I had to explain to the monk there that the reason I might be just a tiny bit late sometimes for the first sitting was I had to like go back to my room and kind of tidy up and put on something else. But I noticed that there is the thought of cleaning the bathrooms and the showers and all the rest of it, which was repellent to my mind. And then there were parts of the actual doing of it that were unpleasant. But surprisingly, when I looked carefully at what was involved with it, it wasn't as unpleasant as I thought. And I actually uh, got to the point as the retreat went on where I was taking, here again, we'll get back to the mental attitude of the, uh, you know, good performance with the steel wool. But I, I got to the point where I was, you know, felt a certain amount of satisfaction in those, those clean toilets, you know, because everybody likes a clean potty chair, right? The thought of people coming in and they open up the door, they're having a bad day, they open up the door and the bathroom is all pristine, you know, just makes them feel kind of good, right? No messes on the seat, you know, it's like clean. So it kind of, it kind of flipped around into a little uh, bodhisattva motivation, but it did take a while. So, so some happiness of the thought of people using the bathroom. 
So, you know, you can look at the mind states that are present as you're, as you're working along there. You know, happiness, resentment, boredom, relief, metta, letting go, and all the uh, feelings that might be there. Competition with coworkers. I, I had uh, uh, a Dharma teacher friend tell me once that he had a veggie chopping job and he noticed at a certain point that he was feeling competitive with the other carrot choppers, you know, because they were going faster than he was, and then he tried to go faster, and then he cut his finger. And then he decided, we need rules for how fast you can go, that we should, <laughs> you should only be issued like six carrots at a time so people didn't feel like they had to hurry up, you know. So, so papancha happens to us all. So I had another friend tell me uh, who had... Uh, job sweeping uh, and mopping floors that it was very interesting for her when she realized uh, that she would mop the floor and it would be clean and then people would walk through the floor while it was still somewhat wet and she would watch the feelings of anger arise in her mind at people walking on her clean floors with their dirty feet it's like classic mother uh, stuff and uh, and feeling uh, disregarded and like her work didn't count and all of all of this stuff and she saw it clearly as a mind construction right because in actuality in this particular case because of a, a structure of the circulation path in the buildings you had to walk through that corridor <laughs> to get to the med hall at a certain time that people didn't really have that much of an option but it's all very interesting isn't it so yogi jobs very important and interesting field of practice so does your job have social dimensions you know what's arising in the presence of others you know, is your mind projecting things onto to other people? Or it's very interesting. Pot washers can get. I have a friend who actually likes to do pot washing. She says when she comes on job on a retreat, she always wants to be a pot washer, which is kind of an interesting thing because a lot of people are like pot washing. I don't like pot washing because so it's kind of a hard job and you got to work with other people, but. She's very extroverted, and so it's kind of like, you know, you're not talking or anything, but you're kind of working together as a team and, you know, interacting with each other. <laughs> this is as close to socializing as we get on this retreat, you know. And, of course, there's always the arising of mana or self-view, which is important to notice. Very fertile area of investigation. You know, this tendency to regard oneself as... Uh, comparatively as better than, worse than, or the same as. Uh, it's very common and sometimes very painful. So all of these things are already happening in your experience. Right? They're already part of your experience here. So the question is, can you incline the mind to be mindful with what you're experiencing in these off times 
and consider it part of the field of practice. Because it will yield a lot of reward for you. So you've got the midday break, you know. What do you notice about the body and mind after lunch? What's present in the mind stream when you decide to rest or walk or go back to formal practice or take a shower or do other activities? So you would want to be looking at motivation and intention there. In different times, there might be different motivations and intentions, right? I want to take a, take a walk to get some fresh air and to build some energy. I want to take care of myself by, by taking a nap. So just to notice these things, to have them <clears throat> part of the field of awareness. Questions around the retreat container and keeping uh, the noble silence agreement. This is also a very interesting area. So, you know, we have the precepts and we have the agreements around things like cell phone use and, and the rest of that and noble silence. So when, when you become aware of, for instance, wanting to act at variance with the retreat practice agreement, what is actually going on in the mind <clears throat> when you notice that? You know, when you feel like, like leaving a note for another yogi or playing around on the cell phone, etc. So what are the mind states that are there? Are they wholesome or not? Are there hindrances or body states that can be seen as part of this? You know, what are the thoughts that are there with the impulse, the desires that are there? So, you know, if, if there's difficulty there, a challenge there, a struggle there around that particular uh, kind of area, that's something that you can talk about uh, with your teacher for sure. And, it, and see what you can do to bring as much mindfulness as you can to the arising of those wants or those impulses. And then, of course, in practice meetings. Okay, so you're sitting out there on the chair. I would sometimes have, have the image come up as I was sitting on the chair waiting for a practice meeting of being in back in grade school sitting on a chair waiting to go to Mother Superior's office. Partly because I did spend some time sitting on a chair in the hall waiting to go to Mother Superior's office. Um, but what is, it, what is it for you when you're sitting there waiting to go in? Um, what's resonant there in the body-mind? So is, is, it, is there nervousness? Is there excitement uh, at the chance of getting to talk to somebody? <laughs> or, you know, maybe get some support for what's happening in your practice? Is there confusion? Is there anticipation? Uh, resentment? Does the uh, this body-mind system feel like it needs to display something or prove something or, you know, look good? Or uh, do, does it feel like it needs to protect itself? Or, 
what does it feel like sitting outside waiting, waiting to go in? And I think it's a pretty rich time to look, you know, is your mind like going over what you can say and wondering about what you should, what you should say or worry about you not being able to describe what you want to say or forgetting something or... So that's an off-time activity. But you can see it's very vibrant. It's alive. Mindfulness can be carried there. It's all part of it. So these questions are all being asked in order to support you in being able to extend mindful awareness into all parts of the retreat. Thus to fulfill my pledge to help you find more practice time without staying up later. Because you're already having these experiences. This is already part of what is arising in the heart and mind. So can you, you take the mindfulness that you've generated in the sitting and walking practice and without you know, requiring a tight kind of attention, incline the mind to be present for what it's experiencing in the interim periods, thus avoiding the pitfall of stop and go practice. So this is all for, for you to experiment with as you see fit. But this learning to be present in real time with the flow of body-mind experience can also support and strengthen and sustain the formal practice. Because when you come back into the hall or you go to your walking place, you've already got presence gathered. You're not starting from zero or starting from... uh, some long voyage to a hindrance-ridden planet. And another thing that this way of thinking of it does is it begins to break down the view that the real thing is the cushion and only on the cushion. And this is a huge support in being able to extend both the practice into all aspects of of life when you're on retreat but also when you're not on retreat. As Uttejaniya says in Dharma everywhere, welcoming each moment with awareness and wisdom. So if you can practice in this way, you're really going to accelerate your development and, to gain, and gain the capacity to carry mindful awareness off the cushion in other environments. So it's a, a worthy endeavor and you've got some good ground here because you're intensively cultivating mindfulness in the formal periods. So you have it gathered already. So then when you go with your, to your next thing, if you incline the mind to bring it with you in this more uh, open and investigative, relaxed form, You've got something going on. So enjoy your yogi jobs. 
even the toilets. They, uh, they have treasures within them. Let the words settle. May we carry this portable Dharma with us wherever we go for our own benefit and for that of all beings everywhere.